0: Please open with me to Matthew chapter 12 as we continue our study through this amazing gospel. Matthew chapter 12. This morning we come upon a passage that many of you were looking forward to uh, studying. Matthew chapter 12. This is a hinge passage. This is the pivot chapter upon which the entire book, the entire gospel pivots Everything changes from here on out. This passage, specifically verses 30 and 30, or 31 and 32, are some of the most challenging and some of the most misunderstood verses in the entire Bible. One pastor, he put it like this This passage, he says, is like a chainsaw. Pick it up carelessly, and someone is going to get hurt. So no doubt some of you who are here have wondered and maybe even asked yourself in reference to verses 31 and 32, have I ever blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Am am I guilty of this sin? So pastorally here, this passage is very significant. What happened in this chapter is extremely consequential. And so we need to know what this sin is who can commit it, and how it can be committed. But I want you to see also that our passage is not about this. The main point is not about, quote-unquote, the unpardonable sin, but about the kingdom of God and the king who comes As God's anointed, in order to overthrow the kingdom of darkness and the work of the enemy. That is the overall theme and the purpose of this chapter. Jesus, Matthew writes, is the son of David who's brought God's kingdom. And we will see, as we have already seen in the previous chapters, that the reign of Christ is overpowering here the forces of darkness and are setting the captives free. If we simply focus on these two verses, verses 31 and 32, we will misinterpret them. So it's important for us to trace how Matthew builds up to what Jesus proclaims so that, like this pastor said, nobody gets hurt and we do not misinterpret Christ's words. So look with me at Matthew 12, verse 22. We'll begin reading there and we'll read through verse 32. Then a the demon-possessed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For they reason, for this reason they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or or how can anyone enter the strongman's house and carry off his property? Unless he first binds the strongman, and then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Jesus continues on his Uh, discourse here in verse 33 through verse 37, but we'll leave that um, till next week. So here's the, the big idea. The big idea is not necessarily what is this sin. The big idea that Jesus presents here and this miracle uncovers is this, that Christ the King confronts you with a choice, just like he confronted the crowds, just like The Pharisees were confronted. Christ the king confronts all of us with a choice to receive him as exclusive good or to reject him as evil. That's what this verse or this this set of verses teach. Receive Christ as exclusive good or to reject him as evil. The incident before us in verses 22 through 37 consists of three scenes or three movements. First, Jesus' authority and power as king is demonstrated by this miracle. Second movement, it is then denied by the people, by the crowds and the Pharisees. And third, then, it is defended by Christ himself. So with these three parts here, let us approach this text, and we're going to look at one after the next. And I do pray for the Lord to reveal to us the truth about Christ. And his kingdom and his reign and his power. So first consider this. Jesus' kingship is demonstrated. Is demonstrated. Look with me at verse 22. As soon as Matthew finishes quoting Isaiah 42 in verses 18 through 21, he brings into focus for his readers another instance that confirms what he had just quoted. That Jesus is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited king. We are told here in verse 22 that a demon-possessed man was brought to Jesus, and this man had physical disabilities, which consisted of blindness and muteness. This is the only reference in Matthew's Gospels where both maladies are mentioned and are present in one person. We can see then that his blindness and muteness, they are caused by his demonic possession in verse 22. He was demon-possessed and he was blind and mute. And Matthew simply tells us he healed him. He healed him. The demon in this person is overpowered by Jesus so that he is cast out. And the healing then is evidenced by this man's ability at the end of verse 22. Look, so that the mute man spoke and saw. So he recovered his ability to see and to speak. And everyone saw it and everyone heard it. And guess what? No additional details are given here. Matthew does not focus on who brought him to Jesus. He doesn't focus on this man's faith. Did he believe? Was he forced to come? Usually demon-possessed men, they don't come to Jesus to be healed. But he doesn't focus on any of these peripheral matters because his purpose, his sole focus, is not placed on this miracle per se. Let me give you the details of what happened. No, but on what it demonstrates about people's response to the miracle. Listen, Jesus healed the blind man. It says something about Jesus. Not only was this man blind, he was also mute. He possessed Jesus in himself, possessed power that only one person could possess. He is the prophesied Messiah who gives sight to the blind, who gives hearing to the deaf and speaking to the mute. He is the servant of the Lord right there in our context, verses 18 through 21. That's why this quote here is so, so important. This miracle is one in line that demonstrates the power of the king, and that's the first scene. Jesus' kingship is demonstrated. This is probably my shortest point, first point in, in all of the sermons. That's it. Verse 1. One verse, 22, demonstrates. And Matthew's like, let's move on. So what's the second scene? What is the, the second movement? Well, now we see that Jesus' kingship is denied. As soon as it's demonstrated, it is denied. Instead of giving us more details about the miracle, Matthew focuses on people's response in verse 23 and verse 24. And friends, both responses are negative, but one is more severe than the other. Look with me at the crowds, verse 23. All the crowds were amazed and they were saying something. So crowds here first, they doubt that Jesus is the promised Messiah. They doubt. All the multitude who observed the miracle. They are this idea of being perplexed and and amazed. And their amazement is not, wow, this is the Son of God. This is unbelievable. Only right, the Son of God can do that. Their amazement is not like that of the Roman centurion by the cross who looked and said, indeed, This one is the son of God. No, Matthew here, on the contrary, the way he writes this, and Nazbi really communicates uh, their response, it basically says this is not the son of David, right? So they're expecting a negative answer. In other words, observing what just had happened, they're convinced that although Jesus is performing signs which authenticate him, as the promised king. Man, he's just so different than what they expected. He doesn't fit the mold. They knew the prophecies. They knew that he would come in and that he would rescue them, that the son of David would come in and he would sit on the throne of David. He would be the king. And if the king is in his place, then guess what? There shouldn't be any other king. We shouldn't be submitted and subjugated to the Roman authority, right? To the Roman rule. Why is this guy so different? And even though he kind of looks like him, but he's not really. He cannot be. They doubt that he is the son of God. But in verse 24 here, there's another group, and they don't only doubt but the Pharisees here, they attempt to destroy Jesus' credibility and claims to be the Messiah. In other words, they're not only saying, nah, that's not the guy, let's turn around and pack up and go home. What they go and what they what they do and what they go for is malign his character. The Pharisees, they're not like the crowds. They're not asking any questions. They're making statements, grand statements. Remember verse. 14 look with me in verse uh, 14 of chapter 12. the Pharisees they went out and they conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. that's the goal. the goal is not to get everyone to see and to behold Christ. their goal is to destroy him and what's fascinating in this verse right they they, they don't deny his power. they're saying he this man cast out demons. They affirm what happened. Yes, this man has the power to cast out demons because that's obvious to all. You you can't deny it. Instead, what they do is they deny the source of his power. They deny the source. They recognize, right, the power, deny the the source. Instead of recognizing their Messiah, they reinterpret their reality. Instead of seeing Jesus as messianic, they conclude and they want everyone to see him as satanic. So, as we build to verses 31 and 32, that we keep this in mind. This is very important. They're saying the devil is behind this, his power is from Satan, not from God. And therefore, he ought to be rejected they were they were concerned with upholding their tradition, right? instead of seeing the truth of of God's Word. all the evidences before them. they can't deny the power, so they assassinate his character. And what they do is they accuse Jesus of sorcery, and you know the result and the the cause of sorcery is death penalty. And so verse fourteen is clear, they want to destroy him, so they're they're doing everything they can in order to accuse people, in, uh, accuse Jesus of sin that deserves death penalty. This is the second time that Matthew references Beelzebul, but the third time he references the ruler of the demons, both in chapter 9 and 10, it's mentioned, and now here. Beelzebul or Beelzebub, The same name is a reference to a Philistine deity, which means the Lord of the flies. Um, And so they had this God, this deity, which uh, they believed was omnipotent, their so-called God. So the reason why he's called the Lord of the flies is just like flies are everywhere, then this God is everywhere. He's omnipotent. And he is said to be the ruler or the chief of demons. What the Pharisees are saying is that Jesus is not empowered by God, but he is empowered by Satan who rules the demons. He is, right, the head honcho of the demonic rebellion. The one, Satan himself, not just a little demon that he just cast out, but the one the main guy. So, so what is the difference then between the two groups, between the two denials? Note this, that unlike the crowds who doubt that Jesus is the king, the son of David, the Pharisees, they know that Jesus had performed a miracle, that had identified him as king. Friends, these, this group of leaders, they're not dumb. They know their scriptures. They know what is happening. These miracles are there to put a stamp of approval on Jesus Christ as the long-awaited one, as the Messiah. Yet they malign and they destroy his reputation. So as we get to verse 31, the blasphemy of the Spirit, we need to keep this in mind. These people know who Jesus is, and they intentionally are blind, and they are hard of heart. And so they will call this miracle... Demonic, but friends, let us not miss the point that Matthew here is making as the servant of the Lord. Jesus is overpowering the demonic powers, he's releasing sinners from the oppression of the enemy, of devil, and validating himself to be the promised king. The right conclusion to this miracle that Jesus is performing is that he is performing this by the power of God because he has the spirit of God upon him. This person is special. No one else did before what this guy is doing. He must be the one. You may not know clearly exactly what is going to happen tomorrow or the day after, but to see this, you must conclude that God is in this place. And this person looks very much like who we've been anticipating. So, in verse 22, we saw Jesus' kingship demonstrated. In verses 33 and 34, his kingship denied by two groups, one of which proves fatal, which brings us to this third scene, which stretches out for the remainder of our passage here this morning. The third scene is Jesus' kingship is defended. And who else to defend his kingship than the king himself? Everybody seems to be oblivious to what is going on. So Jesus takes it upon himself. Having been maligned, he defends his own ministry. He defends his own messiahship. Why? Because he knows exactly what they are thinking, not just what they're saying. Verse 25, and knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, And and knowing their thoughts perfectly, he can perfectly respond. He's not like he can perfectly respond. He's not like us, right, who sometimes we hear someone respond to us and we're just not sure what angle they're coming from. Like, I don't want to misrepresent what you said, but I think this is what you said. No, he knows everything. He knows the intention. He knows why they do what they do. And therefore, Jesus himself goes after them. And he does a couple of things here. In verses 25 through 27, he first points out that the Pharisee's conclusion about himself, they are illogical and they're inconsistent. And he begins by bringing three metaphors to make his point. A metaphor about the kingdom, about a city, and about a house. Here's the the emphasis that Jesus is making in these verses. He's basically saying this. If you want to have a successful business, right, a a strong marriage or a fruitful ministry, the partners involved in each endeavor, they need to stand together. They need to face one another, and they need to work on whatever it is that they're working. If the business partners can't agree on the direction of the business, that business will not succeed. If the husband and wife can't be on the same page and they can't work together that marriage will be very hard to sustain and the same thing goes for ministry right if we if there's no unity of mind with everyone who's involved working on the same team right they have their own interests it'll be very hard to accomplish Christ's goal for the church. It's a very simple principle and Jesus takes this principle and he applies it to what just happened. Because he basically says, look, Satan is not stupid. He's not dumb. He destroys men in his evil kingdom. But if he himself casts out his own demons, guess what would happen? His kingdom would be no longer, he would be undoing his own kingdom. Is he driving his own people away? Why would he ever do that? That's illogical. You obviously, Jesus says, you haven't thought through this. Very long. Why? Well, because the Pharisees' intention is not really to be logical. Pharisees are blinded, they are hardened, and they take every single, they pull out every single stop in order what? To draw attention away from Jesus. It is illogical. But second, Jesus says that your argument for rejecting the source of my power is inconsistent. In verse 27, he says, If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons your sons, cast out? The reference to sons here refers to those who are disciples or, or followers of Pharisees. We know from Scripture, from, for instance, in Acts 19, that there were Jewish exorcists. Who went around and they pretended to be casting out demons. And, and apparently, these Pharisees, they had no issues right naming their power and concluding that their power comes from God. But when Jesus performs this miracle, they automatically conclude the opposite. So he's basically saying, you have no power or, or no problem concluding that when your son's act like they do something miraculous. You're saying that's from God. But here I am performing this great miracle and and you're contradicting yourself. But they will be your judges when at the end of the day it will be revealed that they really have absolutely no power. On the contrary, Jesus continues on and he says that In verse 28, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In verses 26 through 29, we are told that there are two kingdoms, and there are only two kingdoms. Jesus tells us in verse 26 that Satan has a kingdom, and in verse 28 that God has a kingdom, then the kingdom of God So there's his kingdom, referring to Satan in verse 26, and then there's another kingdom in verse 28, God's kingdom. Two kingdoms, because there are only two kings. And there are only two types of people, friends, who inhabit these two kingdoms. Right, and Matthew, if you remember Matthew chapter 4, when Satan is tempting Jesus, he says, I will give you, if you bow down to me, I will give you my kingdoms. Right, I'll, I'll give them to you. Three times in John, Jesus himself, in John 12 31, 4, 14 30, and 16 11, Jesus refers to Satan as being the ruler of the world who will be judged. So he owns, he runs the show here. In in Second Corinthians 4, right? The God of this world, Paul writes, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So he's very much a king. He's a lesser king, but nonetheless, he is a king. But now Jesus says in verse 28, if I cast out, listen, the focus is on him. He does it. And how does he do it? He does it by the power, by the spirit who anointed him. And if that is true, what you just witnessed, Jesus said, is true, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What he is saying, listen, there is this clash of two kingdoms. The king is in your midst. The power of this greater king is becoming visible. He is storming the gates of the enemy, Satan's kingdom, and is claiming his subject. He says the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. Has, has come upon you. This, there's this idea of confrontation. The kingdom of God is here and it confronts you and you need to deal with it. Don't deny it. Don't malign the king. You need to deal with it otherwise. This man who had just, been, who had just experienced healing had exercised the power of the king. And so he's asking, can you see it? Can you see it? Listen, some in the crowds here hearing this, right, they may have been caught off guard when Jesus says, the kingdom of God has come upon you. They may have been caught off guard because for them, the kingdom of God, it meant complete liberation from oppression. But, But we know from the New Testament revelation that the when the authors write about the kingdom of God, they write in sort of the two components, right? Things that have happened already and the things that have yet to happen. So many theologians, they would refer to this concept and this dynamic as already and not yet. So there are things that happened already and there are things that have yet to happen. The promised kingdom of God has been inaugurated when, when Christ came the first time, but the kingdom of God is yet to be completed or consummated because there are some promises that are not yet realized fully. It's coming, but not yet. Some things are set in motion during his first coming, and he says this, the kingdom of God has come upon you. The king is here, and listen, you may not expect him to do what he is doing, but there are some things that he will complete when he comes the second time. Think about this, right? they believe that there will be a day when God will judge all people. When the king comes, when the kingdom of God arrives, there'll be one day judgment, huge judgment of all the unbelievers. But Jesus comes in and he says, listen, you actually can know the verdict ahead of time. If anyone is in me, he is no longer condemned. If you believe in me, then you will not be condemned. You can be justified by faith. The final verdict, we're still waiting for that. But friends, if you are here and if you place your faith in Christ, you know the final verdict, right? Already you are justified, but you are not yet completely saved. You are not glorified. You are not fully, completely there. But you know what's gonna happen, right? Um, We sang this song before, the war is won, but the battle's just begun. You go into war knowing that I'm, I'm victorious, why? Because you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ that no one can penetrate, that's why. So there's this concept of already and not yet. Paul writes that we are a new creation in Christ. Now, are we new now? or we will be then. Well, there are two concepts. We will we are new now and we will be completely remade new later. So the coming of Christ, his live death resurrection, they it began a new era for believers. Some things come to pass the first time, some things will be consummated when all of the promises of scripture will be complete including his actual earthly physical kingdom. So Jesus says, because I am here, God's kingdom is here. Jesus is God with us, right? Isn't that what Matthew chapter 1, verse 23 says? Emmanuel, God with us, and his kingdom is here. He is God's anointed. And as God's anointed, look at verse 29. Look at verse 29. Jesus comes with his kingdom to plunder Satan's house. Or, how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? Who is the strong man? The strong man is Satan. The strong man here is Satan. He is like Beelzebub, the lord of the house, and Satan has possessions. But Jesus is the stronger man. Satan is the strong man. Jesus is the stronger man. And guess what he does? He busts into Satan's house. He binds up Satan. And he delivers people out from Satan's dominion. How can anyone enter his house, Jesus says, and carry off his property? Consider what just happened here. Jesus comes to a man who is demon-possessed, right? Under control and dominion of this strong man, Satan. And Jesus the king, coming with his own kingdom he what? Casts out this demon. What happened to Satan in his possession? He binds the strong man and says, they rightfully belong to me. They're not yours. They are mine. He goes and he rescues people from the domain of darkness and he forgives their sins ultimately. We sang this song and Before this hymn, his kingdom cannot fail. He rules o'er earth and heaven. The keys of death and hell are to our Jesus' given. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice. Rejoice, again I say, rejoice. Jesus says, friends, the king is here. The stronger man has come. And he is taking back what rightfully belongs to him. So contrary to Pharisees' claim, Jesus says, I'm stronger. So in verse 30, because Jesus is stronger, there is this call to respond accordingly. Respond accordingly. You can't be neutral. He he confronts you with a choice. He confronted the people who, who are standing there and who are hearing him speaking to Pharisees and, and these crowds who are doubting whether he is the son of David. He confronts them and he says, there is no middle ground. If you are not with Jesus, you are against Jesus. He who is not with me is against me, he says. Everyone is born in this Kingdom of darkness. There are two kingdoms, but there's one choice. Your only hope, Jesus says, is to be with me. Is to hope in Christ because Christ is this dividing line. He's not in company with Satan. He's opposite of him. He is against Satan. And so therefore, he's been calling out from chapter 9 even earlier. He says, come, come to me. Come, come out. Come, follow me. Look who I am. I came to save. I came to restore. He's been gathering people to himself. And until, friend, you come to Christ, and until you behold him, until you believe in him, you are living against him, even if, notice, even if you are not actively opposed to Christ. If you're not walking with Christ, he considers you as one who is still in the kingdom of darkness who is not with him. So it's not just this direct aggression and opposition. I hate Jesus is what you say. You don't have to say that. You could just not care and be indifferent to this king. That's why Jesus says both the crowds and the Pharisees are guilty. They both deny me. He who is not with me is Against me And he uses this picture of gathering and scattering, right? And we might immediately think of idea of like taking the seeds and scattering them and then, after some time, gathering in the harvest. But it seems that this illustration here points to the Old Testament picture, uh, for instance, in Ezekiel 28 or Jeremiah 16, where God's people there are scattered as exiles, and they are not in the promised land, and they are promised that one day there will be a king who will come and he will gather you back to the promised land. And Jesus then comes in as a good shepherd and he looks at the crowds in Matthew chapter 9 and he says, look at this harvest. I want to bring you home. And so... Their biggest problem here in the Old Testament, it seems like their biggest problem is that they're just scattered from the land of Israel. But Jesus comes in and he exposes a bigger problem. It's not just that they're scattered. Their biggest problem is that they're a captive to sin and Satan. And Jesus, the stronger man, the king of kings, he comes in to release them. And so he calls everybody who listens, come, come home. I will deliver you. Trust in me. But instead, what are they doing? They turn around and say, this man is a devil. Not only they refuse to enter themselves, but they do the best they can to deny other people to enter. The glory of the king, glory of God is in their midst. Yet they say, look, he looks like Satan. So, what is Christ's response then? We come to our verses. And we have five minutes. Verses 31 through 32. We get to the controversial verses. In these verses here, Jesus pronounced the condemnation on the Pharisees that they had brought upon themselves. What Jesus says is, what you are saying is so foul that there is no forgiveness for this in the final judgment. What had just occurred, this buildup to this pronouncement in verse 31 and 32 says, there is no forgiveness for what you just did. But let us observe a few things here as we work our way through these verses. First, note Jesus' emphasis on forgiveness. You know, when we come to these verses, we're almost like, it's almost like we got a highlighter and we, we highlight, will not be forgiven. Whoa! But I want you to see something. Twice, he emphasizes the fact that any sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. And this is what we need to understand. He emphasizes what is forgiven? Any sin and blasphemy. Church, we need to hear this loud and clear. God is a forgiving God. That is the great message of the gospel. Your sins can be forgiven. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In Psalm 86, 5, he says, or it, it, the statement is made, for you, Lord, are good, and you're ready to forgive. In Isaiah 1:18, God invites The people, his adulterous people, and he says, listen, come now. Let us reason. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of Jesus because Jesus reveals the heart of the Father. Come. And this theme, it runs throughout all of Scripture. No matter how severe your sin is, God will forgive your sin. There's no limits to God's grace. He will forgive anyone of anything, anywhere, and absolutely at any time. If you turn to him in forgiveness, this promise remains, I will forgive your sins. Because why did he come? Well, he came, Matthew 1. 21, he came to save sinners from their sins. And friends, we need to take that to heart. That's the gospel. We we can't approach this text, listen to this carefully, we can't approach this text thinking that there are sins that merit his forgiveness and there are sins that do not merit his forgiveness. Because guess what? No one owes you forgiveness. No one knows me forgiveness. Nothing merits forgiveness. That's why it's called grace. By grace, we are saved through faith, right? By grace through faith. So sinner, come. Come and receive forgiveness. And second, I want you to see that this specific blasphemy has to do here in this chapter, in this context, with the anointing of Jesus as the Messiah. It has to do something with the Spirit being on Christ and identifying him to be the Son of God, the anointed one, the King. In Isaiah 61, verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. The promised Messiah is promised to be anointed. And so in Matthew 1.8, if we just track through Matthew, and we need to be really sticking to the context of Matthew to really understand this. Matthew 1:18, Jesus here says that he, uh, he was conceived by the Spirit. The Spirit descends on Jesus in Matthew chapter 3. And here in 12:18, that's why this quote is so important. In 12:18, Matthew here puts it in in order to communicate this very fact that Jesus is the servant of the Lord who is, right, I will put my spirit upon him who is anointed by the spirit. Here's the Messiah. Here's the king. So the point of all of this is to say that the spirit of God is the ultimate crowning of the Messiah. He crowns him as the Messiah. And so Listen, to deny and to dismiss him as mere man, right, is one thing. Like he says in verse 33, whoever speaks a word against the son of man, to dismiss him as mere man is one thing. Like his family thinks that he is kind of crazy, right? But they're not accused of this. The crowds think that he's off. They're not accused of this. But to look at him and hear his claims and see his works, which are done by the Spirit, is to effectively deny the one who brings salvation in the first place. These Pharisees, they are so hard-hearted that they will continue to persist in their denial of Christ all the way to the cross. And so Jesus here, he accuses them, the Pharisees, of blaspheming the Holy Spirit they have because they have hardened their hearts so much that they not only reject him in the face of overwhelming proof, but point and say, this one is from Satan, do not follow them. Their problem is not lack of clear evidence. It is the hardness of heart, which we will see in verses 33 through 37. So the question then remains, do we can we commit this sin? Is this sin even possible to commit? And I think that if you gather all this evidence that we looked at here in this context, we can determine I think that it is a unique sin that is committed uniquely in salvation history by a unique people. So these Pharisees, they were called, right, to study the word and to teach the law to point people to the one who would come. They had a unique position. They were unique people. They were considered to be those who would gather people to the Messiah. And what they're saying now is that the Messiah is here. They are the gate that shuts down on the people, and they're saying, no, 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 don't come to him. They're not gathering people to him. They're not gathering people with him. We need to define this sin in the context of Matthew and also Mark and Luke who speak of this. But nowhere else is this particular sin, as it is labeled here, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is addressed. So I would say that technically, because this sin is unique, you cannot commit this sin today. But... There's always a but, right? Beware. Beware. Can we commit similar sins? Yes. Like refusing to believe the testimony of the Spirit about Jesus Christ when you hear the gospel? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like attributing the work of God to Satan? Yes. Like persisting in unbelief? Today, yes. Is there forgiveness for unbelief in Jesus Christ? No. Ultimately, when you continue to refuse, when you continue to harden your heart, we just read in Matthew or in Hebrews chapter 10, if you have the knowledge of God, if you continue to hear the gospel, and Jesus is on display, and the Spirit is pointing you to Christ, to behold him as your only way to be reconciled to God, and you turn around and you say, thank you, I am good, and if you persist to this until death, there remains no longer a sacrifice for you because there's only one way to be reconciled to God. So this is very serious as a form of application for us. What these people committed then was unique in salvation and redemptive history, but nonetheless, we can refuse the one who is speaking to us today. And therefore, beware, lest you harden your heart against the Spirit. So let's wrap this up and we'll continue next week. Jesus is the king and he has real power that has been manifested in his work by the Holy Spirit. He has opened up, friends, he has opened up the kingdom of God to us. That's what he does. And if you've trusted this king today, that's why we're singing, we rejoice because we're part of this kingdom. Is the kingdom fully and finally here? No, not yet. It will be. We anxiously wait for the appearance of his son. But you're in it if you trust Christ. You've been rescued. Christ bound up at the cross. This snake. This serpent. And he's still squirming. He's still very dangerous. But we know of his end in Revelation. That gives us hope. So praise the Lord that you're in it but but if you haven't the call here is to not delay receive him receive him by faith as exclusive good everything else is evil everyone else is evil Jesus alone is good be gathered to him and gather others to him don't harden your heart Don't turn away from the one and the only one who can deliver you, friend. Don't reject this king. He is good. Receive him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the power that is demonstrated through the gospel. The gospel as a rescue mission to bind the one is more powerful than us, but not more powerful than you, and to claim us as your subjects now. What an amazing truth. Help us to behold Christ. Help us to constantly grow in the knowledge of Christ and what we have in him, and we do pray for those who may be here among us or may be listening to this message And I pray, Father, that you would speak to them and that you would convert the souls and the hearts of many, prevent anyone from hardening their hearts against you. You are so gracious. Jesus is so good. Help us to marvel in his goodness. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.